Welcome to Stork Storytime Talks with the North Liberty Library. Are you expecting or growing your family? If so, this podcast is for you. Delivering literacy one topic at a time. This episode is sponsored by Mercy, Iowa City. We invite you to like and subscribe to our Talks podcast wherever you listen. I'm Kelly with the North Liberty Library, and I welcome you to the Stork Storytime Talks podcast. Just a quick disclaimer about this episode. Today's content is for adult ears, especially parents and guardians who may be grappling with conversing about today's topic. If you grew up in the late 80s, early 90s like me, you probably recall the adamant call for HIV awareness encompassing the global conversation. While that conversation seems to have grown quieter in recent decades, the dialogue is strong and growing within the community of those working and living with HIV. My two guests today are here to share their experience with HIV awareness and outreach, and they both have the expertise to speak to this topic. Dr. Dina Dillon is a specialized pharmacist with a passion for the care of people living with HIV, which she's had the privilege of doing for over 20 years. She currently serves as a clinical pharmacy specialist in the HIV clinic at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and is a provider for Iowa Teleprep, an HIV prevention program. Tammy Haught is the training and organizing coordinator for the Ciro Project, a network of people with HIV and allies fighting for freedom from stigma and injustice. Tammy was the chain community organizer who led Iowa's efforts to modernize their HIV-specific statutes in 2014. She is currently the vice president of Positive Iowans Taking Charge. Welcome, Dina and Tammy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you and with my hero, Tammy, who's taught me so much about advocacy. Thank you so much for covering this important topic. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Now, both of you, could you please tell me and our audience a bit about what each of you do and its connection to HIV awareness? I am Tammy Hott. I live in rural Northeast Iowa, and I have been living with HIV for 27 years. So... This work is a significant part of my life. HIV completely changed what I thought my expectations would be for my life um, when I was diagnosed back in August of 1993. So the work I do now to bring awareness is on the statewide level. I am the vice president of PITCH, which is Positive Iowans Taking Charge, and we are a social support group for Iowans living with HIV chain that you mentioned earlier is Community HIV Hepatitis Advocates of Iowa Network, and we are the lead advocacy organization for people living with HIV and hepatitis. And on the national level, I work for the CERO Project, which is a national organization 
that focuses on people living with HIV being at the decision-making tables for laws or just on planning bodies, anything that impacts our lives, just demanding that people living with HIV are at these tables where decisions about our bodies are being made. And one of the main things that we are doing to bring awareness around HIV is by working with other state coalitions to modernize their HIV-specific laws that further stigmatize and marginalize people living with HIV or at risk of acquiring HIV. Yes, lots of advocacy work has gone into your career over the past, I would say, three decades. So thank you for that. Dina, tell us a bit about what you do. I have three primary roles associated with my work. One is a clinical pharmacist in the HIV clinic at University of Iowa Healthcare. I help patients get the most out of their medicines and help train the future HIV specialty physicians. And I've been there for 23 years. doesn't seem that long. And then another role as a provider in the Iowa Teleprep program for over four years, I help people access medications for prevention. One of my very favorite parts of that role is outreach to increase awareness of HIV, such as hosting booths at community pride events and had the opportunity to attend the Iowa Leather Fest a few years ago to help educate people about HIV. Also, as a consultant for the Midwest AIDS Training and Education Center, I get to educate healthcare professionals, many of whom are not specializing in the area about HIV. I make sure to let them know it's a chronic manageable disease. I'm happy that both of you were able to be on the show to talk about this topic because you're representing two very different perspectives of the crisis. There's the advocacy part and the healthcare medical part. From your unique viewpoints, Has the conversation gotten silenced about HIV awareness? And if so, how do you make the conversation about awareness as prominent as it was 30 years ago? I'll start with Dina on that one. It's a tough question, but I could say there is still a lack of awareness, even after all these years. And there's a variety of reactions I get when I tell people that I work with HIV, which I like to do that at every opportunity, especially like people sitting next to me well before pandemic, before COVID. (laughs) Anyways, I've been asked, are you scared? And I'm like, no, I do not share body fluids with my patients. I am at zero risk. I've had some people even today who think it's a death sentence. And I make sure to say, no, it's a chronic manageable disease. If you didn't take your insulin for diabetes, you know, that could kill you too. So in fact, there was a senator who asked me if it was cured. I said, no, hepatitis C, we have a cure now, but not HIV. And he's like, no, I read that article. And (laughs) there's a mixture. So I don't know about silence, but there is a lot of misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think having those conversations that you're having from a medical perspective are very important because that only strengthens the advocacy portion to have more conversations. So that question for you too, Tammy, do you feel like the conversation has been silenced? And if it is, how do we make it more prevalent again? I think that it has. And I actually think that stigma associated with living with HIV has increased in recent years. And in Iowa, since we modernized our laws, there haven't been the horrific news stories or headlines, although there was last year, of somebody who living with HIV who was arrested, and the prosecutor tried to charge them under the law before we got it modernized. And this is often how people hear about HIV anymore, is when somebody is being charged under an HIV-specific law. So 
there is the assumption that we are all dangerous or we are all criminals or we are all trying to transmit HIV, which couldn't be further from the truth. And actually, once the prosecutors saw that the law has been modernized, those charges were dropped against this individual. But in the 80s, when people were dying, there were the feel-good stories of people surviving and working on educating people living with HIV. And after 1996, when the antiretrovirals came along and we started to live longer, when I think advocacy for people living with HIV sort of died off because we were no longer just fighting to live. We were actually able to thrive. And so there isn't the awareness of prevention, of treatment, of knowing that people living with HIV, we are your neighbors and we are just like you. And we now know how HIV is transmitted. And for people like me, I've been blessed that for the 24 of the 27 years that I have been diagnosed with HIV, I've had access to my life-saving medications and care and treatment. And so I am what is now considered virally suppressed, which means I'm not cured, but I cannot transmit HIV. So our goal and the awareness that we're trying to bring is that what we need to do is we can end the HIV epidemic, which that's a campaign that I have questions about, but we can end any new transmissions for anyone acquiring HIV through PrEP that Dina works on through the TelePrep program. So people can take medications so they do not acquire HIV. I think healthcare is a human right. And if everyone has access to their life-saving medications, and are able to reach viral suppression, we cannot transmit HIV. So we have the tools in our toolbox to end the HIV epidemic or end new transmissions, but we have to have the will as a country to do that, which means everyone having access to their medications, removing the barriers to treatment and care, and these HIV-specific laws are part of those barriers. Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up, Tammy, because that brings me back to a question with Dina regarding medications. Something that we're going to be focusing on here at the library is we're having an event on Thursday, April 15th called Lighthouse in the Library. It's a series of conversations that we're having with the community over the rest of this year. And our first topic is going to be health equity, you know, access to health care and access to medicines. So Dina, in your role, where does that come into play, the access to the medicines and the treatments that Tammy was just referring to? On my team at the University of Iowa, we have eight social workers who do an amazing job of making sure everyone has access. Also, I've been really impressed with the HIV and hepatitis branch of the Iowa Department of Public Health has given a lot of support to access. And each state has its own AIDS drug assistance program or ADAP, and that right now is very comprehensive. I remember Tammy and I talking about in the past, there's been a waiting list for that. But you know, right now, if people qualify, they're able to get it. We also have the Iowa Drug Repository. So if somebody, and you can do this with medicines from any disease state, if somebody brings in their medicines that are not expired and stored in the original container, they're sent to a repository in the state, and then if we get somebody who doesn't have insurance yet, we can reach out to the repository and get back some of those medicines to treat them. So right now in this state, I'd be interested to hear if Tammy has a different view, but from my perspective, it seems like most people are able to access the medicines. But the issue is a lot of people have HIV and don't know it. 
And that's where the spread can happen too, because they don't know to take steps to prevent if they don't know they have it. So testing just cannot be overemphasized and people getting into treatment also. But people in treatment is how I should clarify it, seem to have access to meds. How about access to testing? I love where this conversation is going because we are talking about the equity of the meds. What about equity of testing? I've been working with the teleprep for over four years now, and we have partnerships with different county public health. So I'm more familiar with what's going on there, and they all offer the HIV testing. There's a really great collaboration right now between the Iowa Department of Public Health and the Iowa Pharmacy Association to fill some of those gaps between where the public health sites are. So community pharmacies out in rural areas where there might not be you know, readily available testing, they're offering testing to people who are in their communities. Tammy, with your advocacy work, is there an emphasis on, I know you mentioned the medication equity, is there an emphasis on encouraging people to get tested? What does that campaigning look like? It is also the battle of the stigma associated with living with HIV or in rural areas of the state. Although the Department of Health, I agree with Dina, our Iowa Department of Public Health and the HIV Hepatitis STD Bureau is fantastic. And they now have some rural intervention specialists, I believe is their title, that are educating rural doctors on HIV, but for years and after I was first diagnosed and needed any treatment, well, one, at first, the access to care back in the 90s, I had to travel two and a half hours one way to get to Iowa City for any medical care that I needed. Five-hour trip every time I needed to go to a doctor was daunting. Now, with the Affordable Care Act, I can go to the doctor. Well, actually, I was there this morning, five minutes from home right here in my rural community. But the trust of I have a very positive relationship and open relationship with my nurse practitioner about my HIV treatment or just the fact that she knows that I'm living with HIV and trusting her with my treatment. But for the longest time, I wouldn't trust a local doctor with my HIV treatment. When my son was about five years old, he had been sick, really sick. And in my head, I knew there was absolutely zero risk. He was born three years after my diagnosis. So I was on my uh, medications that reduced the risk of transmission to less than 1% from mother to child during childbirth. And up to two years old, he was tested and he is HIV negative. And I knew that, but he was so sick that I took him to the local doctor and I said, all right, I need to see it in writing again. I need you to take an HIV test. They were taking blood to check his blood sugar levels and different things like that. So I'm like, I need to see it in writing again, take a test. So the technician drew his blood and left the room. And then she came back a couple of minutes later and said, I need you to stay here. I'm not sure if I took enough blood. I'm not sure how much blood I need for that test. And I was like, you know, you really needed to check that before you took his blood because you're not going to stick him again. Luckily, they did. And of course, the test came back negative because he hadn't been at risk. But it just shows the lack of knowledge about HIV in rural communities. That is also a barrier to testing. Yeah. And that barrier comes from the stigma. 
Correct. Or people thinking that HIV is not here in Iowa. It's a coastal issue. I thought it wasn't ever supposed to impact my life. Good gravy. I'm from rural Iowa. You know, I wasn't ever supposed to contract HIV. It's supposed to happen to other people. So we always think that quote unquote, bad things happen to other people mm. um, without realizing HIV doesn't discriminate. We do as a society, but HIV doesn't care who you are. If you put yourself at risk, you can acquire HIV. And to add to the testing hesitation, I don't know how many patients we've got, even recently, who've been seen maybe even by multiple providers for ailments, all probably related to their HIV, and people just aren't thinking to test for it. I mean, mostly in the rural areas, but I've seen it even in less rural areas. It is really shocking how, like, it should just be a routine standard practice for everyone. And that's what the guidelines recommend, that everyone get tested. Right. Well, Dina, one of your central focuses, and we've mentioned this again, is that your work at the university is to help patients with HIV to get the most out of their medications. Can you share with the audience what inspired you to get into this work and what kind of background is needed for this role? Sure. And I should clarify too, when I say helping people get the most out of their medicines, what I mean is when I introduce myself to a new patient, I explain like to help with adherence, side effects, drug interaction, treatment selection. That's what I mean by that. But yeah, what inspires me, I learned early in my training, which in inner city Detroit, we actually had a unit. It was like 1994. There was a unit just for infectious disease and mainly people living with HIV. But I learned that showing just a little bit of compassion can really go a long way. It spreads out. And you know, my faith is one of the parts that inspires me to show compassion and also my humanity. My training, I got a doctor of pharmacy degree. Then I did one year of general residency. And then I did a specialty residency to specialize in infectious diseases. I have a student who went right from pharmacy school to work at a specialty Walgreens, and now he's gone into HIV as well. So it varies the level of training that people have, but that was my training. Good. And Tammy, you work as an organizer within the HIV-impacted community, but you also have a backstory of your own that fuels your advocacy. Uh, Could you please share your journey with the listeners? I was diagnosed on August 23rd, 1993. It was the day before my 25th birthday. At that time, I knew that chances are I was living with HIV. My fiance at the time was diagnosed on August 4th, 1993 with AIDS. He had a T-cell count of 12. And the doctor told us that we might as well cancel our wedding plans, which were for November, because he wouldn't live long enough. He had multiple secondary infections that were opportunistic infections that were very common for people living with HIV. And he had them for quite a while, but I knew nothing about HIV, so I didn't recognize the symptoms. So after he was diagnosed, I went in to be tested. And at the time, you had to wait two weeks before you got your diagnosis. Um, But by that time, I was pretty sure that I had seroconverted and could figure out when that took place. So actually, when I was diagnosed, I think it was more stressful for the tester having to share that information. He was surprised. He's like, why aren't you more upset? And I'm like, well, I kind of figured it out in the last two weeks. And that's why I was almost having to comfort him after my diagnosis. 
And so luckily, my husband did live long enough. We got married in November 1993. He lived almost three years longer. He passed away October 12th, 1996. I was seven months pregnant. We were living in Texas at the time, which is where his folks were. So two weeks after his passing, and after I made sure that I'd seen the doctor and had all the medication that I needed, I moved back to Iowa where my family was. And I wanted to have my son here with the support of my family. And I basically moved back preparing to die. So our son was born December 21st, 1996. Like I said, two months and seven days after his dad died. And for the first 10 years of his life, one, he was spoiled rotten because I didn't know how long I would live. And also I figured I wouldn't have to pay for that spoiling because I'd be dead by the time he was in his teens. I wouldn't have to deal with that. But like I said, medicines changed in 1996 to where we live long, healthy lives and can thrive. But it wasn't until actually it was a dental technician that after a cleaning, she goes, now I can tell you're not flossing every day. And I'm like, you're correct, I'm not. And she's like, in 10 years when you start losing your teeth, you're going to regret that. That finally pushed the button that, oh my gosh, I am going to live. And what am I going to do now? Because I had been living to die. So changing the thought process of living to live was different. And for those first six years, three years before my son was born and three years after my son was born, I lived in silence. We told everyone that Roger died of cancer. Because if you have cancer, people care. If you have HIV, people judge. But it was when my son was starting Head Start and thinking of, you know, I was still planning on figuring I would get really sick or die when he was in junior high or high school. It came to the point that as a family, my mom, my sister, brother, sister-in-law and I, we all discussed it. And being open about my status was something that I thought would be best for him. So it was at that time that I started to speak out. And when he started Head Start, at first they were okay. Um, But then at Thanksgiving time, they told me after Christmas, I would need to come back to school before I brought him back to school with a note from my doctor that it was safe for him to be in the classroom or safe for me to volunteer in the classroom. It just so happened that that December, I got sick and I ended up in the hospital with pneumonia. And so it was a good excuse for me to not take him back to school and not have to deal with it. But when he started preschool, which would be with kids that I thought he would grow up and graduate with, I decided that I wasn't going to play those games anymore. And if people were going to talk, I wanted them to have the facts. So I approached the school and said, I want to send out a letter to the parents. I wasn't worried about kids. Preschool kids don't care. This is all coming from the parents. Yeah, it's coming from the parents. So I wanted them to be informed about that it was safe for Adrian to be in the classroom. He was not living with HIV. Me volunteering in the classroom, I could not transmit HIV to kids in the classroom. And when I approached the administration, they did not want to shake my hand because I was living with HIV. Two weeks later, my case managers went in to meet with them to answer any questions that I couldn't have. At that time, they didn't want to shake their hands. So like Dina said, you know, she was asked by somebody, aren't you scared? You know, we have people who still don't grasp it just because you're around somebody 
living with HIV, you are not at risk of contracting HIV. So at that point, I got upset, you know, do something to me, that's one thing, do something to somebody else who is trying to help me, that's something else. And I went in, I said, listen, this is going to happen with you or without you. I would prefer it with you, but if I have to, I will go public and try to shame you into doing the right thing. And they said, oh, no, no, you misunderstood. Of course we support you. So that's really what started my advocacy and my education, and I started to speak to schools, not high schools, because not even my son's school wanted me to talk there, because of course we don't have that issue in Iowa. There was one school that the health teacher pushed to get this education in there because she cared about her kids and she knew that they were at risk. But it was at universities that I would go and start doing education. And that's what started my advocacy career is wanting to make life easier or to try to make life easier for my son. And from there, somebody says, now you can't shut me up, even if you would like to. Thank goodness for that, because, and this goes back to the conversation about the stigma, and you're talking about when your son was in Head Start, this was late 90s, early noughts, Mm -hmm. and this stigma has carried over at this point 20 years since HIV became, you know, a household name in the 80s, and that is just mind-boggling to me, especially when the administrators came in and they refused to shake the hands of the people who were helping you with advocacy. That is just a trip to me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, this is a great segue into some of the stigmas because one thing that we mentioned while Tammy was talking was that this isn't coming from the children. This is coming from the parents. And I like to think the listeners who are tuned into our podcast right now are open and willing to have these discussions with their children. I'm a parent of grade school children, and I think most parents of grade school children are probably around my age, and they grew up in the late 80s and early 90s where AIDS and HIV awareness was at an all-time high. How does this generation of parents have that conversation with their children about the epidemic? Where do they start? so that they can dismantle the stigma in their own homes. Because sometimes we have stigma and we don't realize we're operating in stigma. So how do we as parents have those conversations without stigma? I'll start with Dina first. So I'm speaking from my personal experience here because I do have two kids who are now teenagers. For me, it really depends on their age. When they were little, we talked about people are people. Just like Tammy mentioned, it could be your neighbor, you don't know. And we talked about not to be scared, like if they knew someone had HIV, which many people do hide it and don't tell. I'm glad Tammy told because look at all the amazing things that have come out of her sharing that, but some people don't, so not to be scared. I also made sure that they knew it can't be spread through hugs, and they learned the same thing through their second grade curriculum. Now that they're teenagers, we talk about how it's acquired, how to prevent it. One really important thing I think Tammy mentioned a little bit, the CDC calls it U equals U, so undetectable equals untransmissible. I mean, it's important for my kids to know this. I stress it a lot when I'm talking with people who are doing prevention because I don't want them to be scared of having a partner Mm -hmm. living with HIV. As long as the virus is undetectable, which the CDC defines as less than 200 for at least six months, cannot be spread through sex. I think that's good to know. I tell them it's a chronic manageable condition. People actually are more likely to die from smoking than they are from HIV as long as their HIV is 
well controlled. I also tell people at class reunions that I tell people in the bar that <laughs> my friends get tired of hearing about it. Anyways, I tell them, you know, you might know people who are living with HIV and we talk about the stigma that's around it and why we need to fight that stigma. Also lately, we've been talking about some of the parallels with the COVID pandemic. I know some of my friends have had COVID and didn't want to share and there has been some stigma. It's not the same thing. I don't want to minimize that, but there are just some interesting parallels to it. Plus Dr. Fauci, both. And then moving on from children, you know, I do a lot of work with college students. Sometimes I speak on panels at World AIDS Day. One year there was a pharmacy student. I was shocked at her level. She would say something like this, but she said, how do you treat people with HIV different from normal people? She made me speechless, but I was like, what? And this is a pharmacy student. A pharmacy student. Someone who is studying to go healthcare. out in the world. Yes. Healthcare. My goodness. And I was befuddled. That then I'm like, are any of us really normal? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> normal. I don't consider myself normal, but I don't know. That's my way of approaching talking about it. And I would say, one, before parents could educate their children, they need to educate themselves. So one, programs like this are so important. So I appreciate you bringing this conversation to parents and to the community because there is so much still today. Well, like I said, I think there is even more lack of awareness there was more awareness in the 80s because it was such an emerging issue and people were dying in large, large numbers. Well, we're not dying anymore. We are living. We are living long, normal lives. So there isn't that much information. I mean, when I do speaking engagements, although I'm not invited to do speaking engagements very often anymore. So there isn't education to students in high school or even by time students get to college, they still haven't been educated about HIV AIDS. And part of the problem is, and I know there are so many people trying to get it, but the Department of Health had to cut their education program for health teachers how to talk about HIV with their students. So there isn't that training for health teachers to even talk to their students, which I know is a huge problem because of an issue that happened in the local school district. I ended up opening and enrolling my child to a different school district when he was in junior high. And at that point, I'm like, okay, obviously he and I had talked since he could understand HIV or the understand that I was taking medication daily. But I said, at this point, do you want me to talk to the school about me living with HIV and send out the letter that I had sent out to the parents of our school district? And he said, no. He says, if somebody wants to know something, they could ask me. Well, they didn't ask him. So when they were in health class and the teacher was talking about HIV, one of the students asked the health teacher, can a mother living with HIV have a child who is not living with HIV? And the health teacher said, no, the child would be living with HIV. Well, we know that's not true. So after class, my son stayed until everyone else had left and went to the teacher and said, actually, you're wrong and you need to correct it because my mother is living with HIV and I am not. 
So this is the problem that parents are facing. This is the problem that teachers are facing because they're not getting the education. The community isn't getting the education. The education isn't coming through the media or the only thing that people see in the media is when somebody has been charged. So it's still the stigma that we're bad people or we're not normal, whatever, as Dina said, that is. So it is a real struggle for parents, but the first thing they need to do is educate themselves. Well, and these laws, a majority of them were put on in the late 80s, early 90s. However, we just last week spent the week fighting a new bill that was introduced in Pennsylvania, and it was to protect law enforcement. So it was an assault charge for somebody either spit uh, through blood or feces at a law enforcement for people not living with HIV. It was a misdemeanor, but then they were putting a felony enhancement for people living with HIV or hepatitis B. They specified hepatitis B. Mm-hmm. It became a felony if the person spitting or any of that were living with HIV and were like, one, you cannot acquire HIV through saliva, blood in that way, or feces. So it's even legislators, and through these laws being introduced, it further stigmatizes us. And when people hear that, then they automatically think that we're terrible people or you can't be around us. We've done several stigma surveys, even in the state of Iowa, and people are asked, are you comfortable with your child being in a classroom with somebody living with HIV? And the majority are, no, absolutely not. But we also ask them, would you be comfortable working with somebody living with HIV? And over 50% still today say no, they would not be comfortable living with somebody living with HIV. They're not comfortable if their grocer is living with HIV. So the general public doesn't know anything about HIV anymore, which is really scary because it's putting people at risk. Because if you don't know how to prevent the transmission, you are putting yourself at risk of transmission. So it makes it very hard for parents. But I would say, you know, I think on the CDC website, if you type in HIV or education for HIV, you can find some information. But it is the challenge. And I know you can type in talking to your kids about HIV or something like that. Google the information that will help you have those conversations. But first, as a parent, you have to educate yourself so you're not passing on the stigma and the myths and misinformation. Yeah, I just feel like, especially the exchange between your son and his teacher, that just sounds like a conversation that I would have seen from like a you know, a 1980s after school special. And this is a conversation that's happening in the 2000s. It's just mind boggling to me. And I think ultimately, parents who want to fight that stigma, they really do have to start with themselves by educating themselves. And you recommended the CDC website. Are there any, because everybody's Zooming these days, are there any kind of resources out there that parents, just adults in general, can log on to webinars or podcasts or talks that they can go on to, like this one, where they can learn how to destigmatize themselves? There are a lot of people living with HIV that have YouTube channels. So if you type HIV into YouTube, you can find out. I mean, I know for the Cero Project, we have 
many videos on the impact of criminalization and how that has impacted people living with HIV, which impacts people getting tested. So one of the most effective educational tools that we have is a documentary that my executive director, Sean Strube, created in 2011, and it's titled HIV is Not a Crime documentary. And it highlights the stories of three individuals. Nick, who was from Iowa and was prosecuted under Iowa's HIV-specific law, sentenced to 25 years in jail and sex offender registry. And a reminder, this was consensual sexual experience with another adult. So it also shows the abuse of the sex offender registry, which could be another story. And then it's Monique Moray, who was in the military and contracted HIV from her husband, who was unfaithful, and her fear of losing her kids and the impact that that had on her life. And then Robert Suttle, who was in a contentious relationship. And after the relationship ended, his partner went to the police and charged him for non-disclosure. And on his license, after he was released, in red letters under his picture, it said sex offender. And remember, this was a consensual sexual experience between two adults. So these are the stories that people hear in the news because of these laws. So I would highly recommend, and that's definitely on YouTube. But one of the things that Iowa has done in the past and actually pitches doing it, the campaign should start on Friday. So I can share it with you to share in your notes that go with this recording is an anti-stigma campaign that we're titling, Let's Talk About HIV. And it's a replica of a campaign that we had done in Iowa a couple years ago. And it is a t-shirt that we're having printed that says, I am living with HIV. And we're challenging people to wear the t-shirt and to, before they put the t-shirt on, really think about where are they planning on wearing that? What are their thoughts when they put the t-shirt on? And to observe people as around them as they wear the t-shirt. Are they getting the looks? Are people reading the t-shirt? Do people back away? I've had many, many people back away from me after I've disclosed my status. How do they feel as they're wearing the t-shirt? So it's an anti-stigma campaign that I would challenge, actually, Kelly and Dina, I challenge you as well to try it out and see. We had people not living with HIV to sort of, for even a couple hours, see what it is like disclosing a status by wearing a t-shirt and then document your thoughts on when you take it off. Is there the complete relief? And then you know that you can continue to go on with your life and never have to wear that t-shirt again. But once somebody discloses their status to one person, Mm -hmm. we lose control of that messaging. So people are like, oh, just disclose. It's no big deal. Well, it still is a huge deal. And it's a huge deal, one, with these criminalization laws. But it's a huge deal for women especially because we could risk losing our kids in a child custody suit. People use our HIV status against us. People are still fired, even though that is illegal. People are still fired. They can lose their housing. They are still today, especially in rural Iowa, people are not disclosing their status because their family will reject them. So that will send you that information. But for people to think about it, you know, what would you think about wearing a t-shirt and how do you think your friends would react as you're wearing it or your community. That's one way that we can bring awareness about HIV, but to also challenges people's perceptions as well. I absolutely accept that challenge. And 
I'm just so grateful that we had this conversation. I'll start before we wrap up here. First of all, I want to thank you both for coming on to the podcast. I'm confident that our audience has gained some good information here, some excellent insight and expertise on what HIV awareness looks like these days and the unfortunate factors that haven't changed in over three decades of research and study, but that we have folks like you on the front lines fighting to destigmatize HIV. And I thank you so much for joining me today. Tell our listeners where they can learn more about you, where they can learn more about your work. I'll start with Dina. Sure. I wanted to share the website for the Iowa Teleprep. The point of Teleprep is to make prevention accessible to anyone anywhere in Iowa. You don't need to come to Iowa City for it. It's called prepiowa.org, P-R-E-P-I-O-W-A.org. And the Facebook page for the group is at prepiowa1, the number one. So at P-R-E-P-I-O-W-A-1. My work at the HIV clinic, if you're interested in that, uihc.org, and then search for HIV. All right. Thank you. And Tammy, where can our audience hear more from you? So for Pitch, our website is www.pitchiowa.com. So it's P-I-T-C-H iowa.com and we will have the information on our t-shirt campaign let's talk about hiv on that website starting friday we also have a facebook page you just type in pitch it should come up for the Cero project if you want to find out more information about hiv criminalization laws it is www.seroproject.com and on Facebook, it is The Cero Project, and that's S-E-R-O Project. I'll also send you the links to the campaign and to the different websites. But I just strongly encourage everyone to get educated because people living with HIV, we are, quote unquote, as normal as anyone else. And HIV is the one thing that doesn't discriminate. We are mothers, fathers. I am now a grandparent, you know, from going to not thinking I would live long enough to see my son graduate to I now saw him graduate in 2015. He walked me down the aisle for his wedding. And I now have two wonderful grandsons that I am able to love and spoil as much as I did him. But then I get to send them home. So it's all the wonderful things. We, and if you don't know somebody living with HIV, I would challenge you to maybe ask yourself why. Because chances are you probably do, but maybe you have said something in the past that makes it that you're not a person that they feel is safe to share their diagnosis with. That is the challenge that I would make to people. You cannot acquire HIV from being around us. If that was the case, I live with my mother and my sister. They would both be living with HIV. My son would be living with HIV. They're all negative. You know, I cook for them every day. We're around each other all the time. It is not easily acquired. We know that now. So please, as Dina said earlier, just treat us like you treat everyone else with humanity, love, and compassion. Wonderful note to end on. Thank you both again for being on this podcast. This is Kelly with the North Liberty Library. And today on the Stork Storytime podcast, we talked with Dina and Tammy about HIV awareness. Please feel free to visit northlibertylibrary.org to learn more about our library's virtual programming and services. And thanks again to our sponsors at Mercy Iowa City. 